0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners, to your Wednesday night creepy stories. This time, The Number of Darkness by Humboldt Lycanthrope. It's a two part story with demonic possession, death, The paranormal, demons, demonic magic, and the fight for good over evil. This episode is not for little ears, and not really even safe for work. (laughs) Keep your audio to yourself, folks, on this one. There's sexually explicit content in this episode, more so than most that I do, and this one doesn't hold the punches when it comes to bodily fluids. Strap yourselves in, mates, for the first part of this uniquely dark tale. Enjoy. The Number of Darkness The, the journal, journal of Charles Cooperton, February 9th, 1860. 1860 I begin this journal as a testament to the trials and tribulations my family has endured. May God have mercy on our souls. I feel that we are truly cursed. To think it has only been six years since we left our ancestral home in Prince Edward Island to come to this so-called promised land of California. It feels like an eternity. I have become a widower. My left leg has been amputated and replaced with an uncomfortable length of wood so that I must limp and lean upon a crutch. I have watched as our family's fortune has dribbled away to nearly nothing, and now I have had to send for a priest, for the condition with the girls has grown worse, much worse. My little twin daughters, Bethany and Josephine, they have committed acts of desecration and fornication, the likes of which I can hardly stand to think much less commit to paper it does in fact seem that my dear twins only 14 years old have succumbed to some sort of demonic infestation and are in fact possessed by devils even now as i sit hunched over paper with my quill turning this pale parchment black with my words i can hear them screaming from their back bedroom where we have had to bind them to their beds. Their howls and cries. Animal-like screeching, filling the void of the house. And the situation with the natives has grown steadily worse, though we have taken pity on their outcasts and brought in their sick and elderly, a widow and her children, and treat them with nothing but dignity and respect, as was the custom back in Prince Edward Island. They view us as evil and hate our pastures and fields, our barns and our fences and most of all our mill. The attacks have grown so grievous that we have constructed a fence of sharpened logs eight feet in height around the perimeter of the mill and whenever possible keep armed guards at its gate. Now, to make all these matters at hand the worse, a cold front has blown in from the north and now snow begins to fall thick and heavy, covering the fields and forest in a blanket of ice. When we left Prince Edward Island for the promised land of California, our greatest fear was the journey by boat around the Horn. For two hundred and thirty days, We experienced nothing but auspicious sailing, and when at last we made dock in San Francisco, it appeared that the Lord smiled down on us with blessings, for the trip was mild and without any of the disasters that have plagued so many others who have made this same journey. All forty of us were hearty and in good health, and my wife Margaret had grown large with child being the eldest it was my responsibility to go forth and find us land to farm and a heavy mountain stream where we could build our mill i brought with me my brother adolphus born only one year after me it was we to whom our father had imparted his wisdom and instructions in the business of men and the teachings of our lord and savior jesus christ the younger three george david and john were too young to even remember our dear patriarch, much less be taught in his firm beliefs in the ideals of tolerance, participatory democracy, and diligent self-improvement. Because gold had been found in the hills some four years earlier, a great migration had always, already spread its way before us in all directions from San Francisco, and we were forced to travel far up the coast to find land for lease and sale. We entertained the idea of Oregon, but in the south region of the county of Humboldt, on the outskirts of a small town by the name of Hydesville, we discovered what appeared to be a paradise. The soil was rich, black and fertile, the game abundant with elk and deer, geese and ducks, the streams filled with the finest salmon. There was open prairie ripe for tilling and steep hills with running water perfect for the hydraulics necessary for a mill. After consulting with the local farmers and ranchers, it was determined this would be a most excellent location to establish our mill and dairy. We secured promises for their wheat and corn to be ground in our mill and we gave them oaths that we would proceed to build stout roads over the neighbouring Trinity Alps and into Sacramento where we could run cattle. We then made quick passage back to our family and friends in San Francisco. I, being very eager to return, wishing to make it in time for the birth of my next child, hoping my wife had not already given birth. Leaving the pastoral setting, our aspirations buoyed, and dreams appearing a reality, little could we guess the horror that awaited our arrival. A cholera epidemic has swept through San Francisco. Eighteen from our party of forty had succumbed to the dreaded disease and perished. My wife was dead, my sweet, lovely Margaret, forever gone to me. As were the wives of all my brothers, nearly all our women folk, dead. That fairer sex, it appears, did not have the strength and wherewithal to fight the disease like the men. And what of my child? I asked my younger brother David, who was left in charge in the absence of Adolphus and myself. The doctor doctor cut it from her after she perished. A boy, he lived for a few moments but died before the day was out. I'm so sorry, brother. A male, an heir. All I could think of was that life, struggling within the corpse of my beloved wife, a spark of hope that was extinguished in a day. I was bereft and crestfallen. I struggled hard with these facts. But such is life, and who are we to question the ways of the Lord? I knew I must proceed with forbearance. I had Bethany and Josephine to think of, my sweet honey-haired twin girls. Now I would be their only parent. For them I must put aside my lachrymose nature. Also as the eldest I must make a strong and stoic face as an example and to show respect for all the others in our party who had lost loved ones as well. I shed my doleful composure and made haste to gather our compatriots together for travel. Quickly we made our way north, eager to put the city that had claimed so many of our party behind us. I was now a widower with two twin girls to account for, leaving behind me a wife and newborn son in the cold leaving behind me a wife and newborn son in the cold fog-shrouded earth of San Francisco. We are an industrious and hard-working clan, and within several years we had built barns and established a ranch with 60 dairy cows, 200 head of cattle, and 300 hogs. We harvested 1,100 bushels of wheat our first year alone. Our dairy was the first in the region and we sold butter to the Trinity mines for $1 a pound and packed pork to Eureka for $0.50 a pound. And on the outskirts of the settlements, on the edge of a dense redwood forest, we built our mill. The freight for the machinery as well as the cost of labor was immense and took a large portion of our funds leaving us in the end with little of the family fortune which my father had worked so hard and struggled for. But our enterprises appeared to be thriving, and we had great hope that we would soon have our initial investment back and be seeing a tidy profit. In fact, our courage and enterprise brought other settlers to the area for whom we milled redwood for their barns and houses, as well as grinding their harvests into flour and meal. We saw little of the natives those first years, and what interactions we did have were of a peaceable nature. We even befriended a few of the elderly and infirm, as well as a widow with several children, and let them abide with us, giving them shelter and food for what labor they could provide. Little did we know that a flood of European settlers was crowding the various tribes from the coast out into timber country, where they were hard-pressed to survive conflict, it seems, was inevitable, though we, in our ignorance, were blissfully unaware of it. The troubles began when Adolphus and I ventured out over the Trinity Alps to Sacramento, where we could secure a herd of cattle. The trip there was uneventful, however, on the return, we were attacked by a fierce band of Aborigines. We were forced to abandon the cattle at the hayfork of the Trinity River. I was shot with an arrow in the thigh. It went deep into the muscle, and its tip embedded itself in my femur. When we at last found ourselves back at our settlement, the wound was discovered to have grown septic. My entire left leg was amputated. An awful procedure, held down by my brothers as the doctor diligently performed his duty. A leather belt clamped between my teeth. The feel of that saw ripping into my flesh before it hit bone. The sound and vibration of it as it worked its way through my femur. Never before had I wished for death with such wholehearted fervour. Afterwards, as I lay there in torment and suffering, leeches affixed to the wound to draw out the bad blood. Adolphus left with a team of men to reclaim the cattle. None of them returned. I would never see my cherished brother Adolphus again. Nor would scouting parties ever find a corpse which we could bury and mourn over properly and give a Christian burial to. Indians were blamed, and I doubted it not. But I knew that not all tribes were violent outlaws and many were quite peaceful. I wished justice for the killers of my brother, But I would not blame nor slander all of the native peoples as a whole for this crime. Then the attacks on the mill began. Because of the pressure needed for the hydraulics to turn the water wheel, we were forced to locate the mill in the cusp of the mountains, a secluded spot far from the farms and settlements. This left the mill vulnerable evidently marauding tribes viewed its being at the headwaters of the redwoods and the river, a sacrilege to what they considered a holy site. And the fields to the north, now fenced and cultivated, were once prairie where they hunted. Twice they tried to burn the mill down. We hired armed men to guard, but this proved too costly. Our funds were down to a pittance, and losing that large herd of cattle had further weakened our savings. We then built the fortification around the mill, the tall fence with sharp pointed tops turning it into a fortress. This is also when the troubles with Bethany and Josephine began. Because of my infirmary, I was deemed too crippled to be of much use in the dairy or farms, so I was left to oversee the labour of the mill and tend to the books. At some point, there was a change with the girls. They began to sleepwalk. We would find them wandering the hills at night, holding hands, mumbling incoherently about the devils and the sulfurous flames of hell. One night, going to their room to tuck them into bed, as was my custom each evening. They were behaving in an especially playful manner, leaping from bed to bed, laughing boisterously. I thought nothing of it. They were fourteen, nearing womanhood, their bodies growing plump and curved, their cheeks rosy and, well, I knew, silly games were all the norm for girls their age. Girls, Girls, time for sleep sleep now. now. Stop this rumpus and get into your beds. But but we we aren't your little little girls girls anymore," anymore, they said in eerie unison. Come now, my sweets, whatever do you mean? Why would you say a thing such as that? Because you aren't our father any longer. <laughs> Bethany giggled. We have a new daddy now, Josephine stated, before she too burst into a fit of laughter, her face going flush. But when I shouted, Here, here! and loudly slapped my hands together, they stopped their antics and crawled obediently into their beds. Silly, Silly girls, s- I said, smoothing their blankets over them. You shouldn't it say such things. things. It, it pains, pains your, your poor old father. father. They snickered. I assumed it was just the follies of adolescents and left them. Taking the lantern with me so that the room fell into darkness. They'd changed so much these last six years. Gone from children to young ladies. And in that moment, limping down the long hall, away from their room, my wooden leg dragging across the floor. I ached so hard for my lost margaret that i felt a snap within my chest and broke down weeping it wasn't just sorrow and pity for my own sake but out of a deep concern for my girls how could i a man raise them to be upstanding ladies in this savage land without a single lady of refinement or standing within a hundred miles I resolved I would send them to boarding school. I would look into the matter and find a suitable place on the morrow. That night, long after midnight, a commotion was heard in the sheep's pen. Anyone who has butchered sheep knows the sound of a dying lamb, an almost human wail. It awoke me and several mill workers who were sleeping in the house. Grabbing lanterns and our rifles, we ventured out to the small pen behind the house to find several of the animals slaughtered most savagely, one with its head clean, decapitated. The girls had done this. We discovered them laying unrobed in the viscera of the gutted animals, drenched crimson in blood and writhing in the gore. What's the worse is that they appeared to have done this brutality with their own bare hands and teeth. How? I don't know. But no knives were ever found. They were insensible and babbled nonsense as I and a few servants brought them in back to our home. I bathed them that night. Bathed them as if they were but babies again. Sat them in the tub and poured hot water over them soothing and cleansing them, washing the bloody clumps from their hair, telling them it was all right, while they quietly droned on in a trance-like state. Unclean, unclean, unclean. Fearing further odd incidents of sleepwalking, I put a bolt on the outside of their door and took to locking them in at night. Then it appeared a strange sickness befell them. They lay in their beds, sweating and shaking. They began to bleed from out their ears and noses, and a petulant blue slime leaked from their eyes. No longer did they appear as my lovely twin daughters brimming with womanhood, ready to bloom as a rosebud may grow plump before it unfurls. They began to take on the look of monsters their eyes often rolling back into their heads so that only the whites shone, gleaming against dark rings. Their lips took on a rotten appearance and grew black and ragged. A doctor was called. He could ascertain no ailment. They had no fever nor swollen glands. They began to curse most vilely and blasphemously and spoke in strange languages of which we knew not the words. This is when the doctor first opined that this was maybe a sickness of a supernatural order and recommended a priest. At first I scoffed at this, and was determined to patiently write the strange cause out hoping daily for some improvement. There was none. They refused food, and began to waste and wither, their eyes sunken and haunted in the emaciated skin from which their skulls began to preside. Their beautiful and thick, honeysuckle hair went limp, and tufts began to fall out. The workers around the mill began to grow uneasy, and several quit. They could hear the cries of the girls, the abhorrent blasphemies. They would scream long into the night. The remaining workers began to shun me as well, and when I went to oversee the milling of grain and lumber and check on the weight and quality and... Uneasy silence would fall upon the mill, punctuated by guarded whispers and furtive glances. Then came that awful, harrowing night when I found myself with no choice but to call for a priest. I awoke to the sound of giggling and moaning. It was very late. I crept into the hall and ascertained the sounds were coming from the girl's bedroom. From behind the door, I could hear strange suckling sound and girlish laughter. I unlatched the lock, swung the door open and in the pale light of the moon saw a most abhorrent sight. May God have mercy on my soul for letting these foul memories surface forth from my mind and darken this pale parchment. But my girls were naked and intertwined most wrongly their faces were buried between their legs their calves encircling their shoulders looking at each other and oh this pains me to write they must have been menstruating for their lips were stained that dark red that can only be brought by blood when I entered they turned their faces to me eyes rolled upwards and fish belly white Lips a dark crimson, dripping blood, and they spoke in unison, sultry and heavy. Come, come and join us, Father. Twas then, I knew I must call for a priest. February 10, 1860. We have been forced to restrain the girls, bind them to their bed with a rope. They seem to grow steadily worse hour by hour. They are wasting away. I bring them clabber, broth, tea. I try to spoon it into their mouths. They only turn their heads away, spit it back at me, call me foul names. When they aren't screaming and cursing me, they are giggling as they did when they were toddlers. I feel so very alone and an emptiness rests in my heart. My brothers are far away at work on their ranches, my wife in the grave, and the workers here at the mill eye me with nothing but distrust and suspicion. The only ones who smile at me at all in these dark days are the group of natives I have let into the compound. They are eight in number, an old grizzled man that never moves from the fire, three old women, and a young squaw, I assume to be a widow, with three children, one only an infant. They speak no English and communication with them can be difficult, but they smile and nod at me, mumble words I know are thanks when I offer them food. The widow, Kai Kweish, she is called, is most helpful to me. When I led her to any chores such as to mop the floor or the dining hall or scrub the dishes, She quickly perceives my pantomimes and eagerly does the task. She is the only woman in the compound besides my girls and the silent elderly squaws. And her presence soothes me in some way I cannot seem to put into words. Yes, at the moment, these noble savages seem my only friends. February 14th, 1860. The priest arrived today. He rode through the snow to the garden gate of the mill atop a swayback steed of iron grey. A few workmen who had been guarding the fortifications from hostile Indians immediately noticed him and swung open the heavy redwood doors. I limped through the snow, fighting to keep my crutch from slipping on the frozen ground, to greet him as he strode through the entrance and then dismounted from his horse, which stomped its hooves on the cold, hard ground and snorted steamy breath. He was a tall man with a long black beard streaked in grey, wearing a black frock coat and a matching wide-brimmed hat covered in a thick layer of icy snow. He had dark, piercing eyes with a gunmetal glint that seemed to bore into me as he presented his hand. He spoke clearly, and with a deep voice. Reverend Michael Waiten at your service. His grip was strong, and I felt great fortitude emanate from him. I welcomed him and ushered him through the compound. He led his horse along by the reins as I limped beside him. Did you have a good journey? I inquired. Uneventful. He murmured. Along the interior wall, Kai Kweish and the other natives huddled around a small fire while her toddler chased a chicken through the snow. And why do you allow these savage heathens within your walls? He asked, gazing with disdain upon them. They are impoverished and in need of care, so we have given them shelter, as our Lord Christ has instructed in the parable of the Samaritan. Jesus came to bring division to the earth. Luke 12, 51. But reverend, did our Lord and Savior not say in Mark nine fifty, be at peace with one another? Among the saved, yes. But he is quite clear in Matthew ten thirty four, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Then what of Matthew 26, 51? They that take the sword shall perish by the sword. The priest grew visibly agitated, his face twisting into a baleful knot. He ran a hand over his long beard, turned to me, and nearly spat the words. Revelation 1911. In righteousness, he doth judge and make war. If you do not believe we are in battle with unclean spirits and heathens, I suggest you reread Revelations. I respect your learning, sir, but I have not come here to debate theology, but to cast out demons, if... That is what is called for. Now, where are these daughters of yours that I have been bidden to see? Why, they are in the house, good reverend. They have grown so violent and, well, strange indeed, that we have been forced to restrain them to their beds. I see. Take me to them. Would you not rather me lead you to the quarters where you may unpack and wash up from your long journey? There may be time for that later, my son. First, take me to see your daughters." I led Reverend down the dark hall to the heavy wooden door, bolted shut with a black iron lock. I fished the key from my pocket, unlatched the lock and slowly swung the door open. Inside lay my two little girls, heavily bound to the bed with hempen ropes. They immediately sat up as far as their restraints would let them, and began to hiss, as a venomous viper might when disturbed. The priest entered the room but did not even look at the twins, who began to thrash and wail against their binds, making the bed chatter. He held forth a large crucifix, and circling the room began to chant in Latin, Pater Noster Quee Es in Calis, Sancta Normum tu. It is the Black Number. Bethany began to moan. He with the number of darkness. I can see the blood on his hands. Smell it in his mouth. The black number. Josephine wailed. I can taste his sins upon my tongue. Oh yes, he will satisfy us. What is it you say? I asked them. Do you know him? He suddenly spun about to face me. His face like that of a raptor. Silence! Never engage with the demons. They are full of deceit and trickery and serve the father of lies. Then he turned and faced the girls for the first time. In the name of Christ, reveal to me your true names. The power of Christ compels you. Reveal your true name. He thrust the large black crucifix before the face of Bethany. Asmodeus, Zebulon, moaned Bethany. He spun towards Josephine, pressing the crucifix against her forehead. Grâce, Amad, wailed Josephine. The priest turned to me. Can you bring me a plate of hot coals and the liver and heart of a fish? Why yes. I stammered. There, there are, are still hot, hot coals, coals in the hearth, and we have fresh fish, fish in the ice house. Then bring them to, to me with haste. Them. He then began to chant again and walk about the room. I did as instructed, and brought to him a metal plate laden with embers from the fire, and a parcel containing the heart and liver of a salmon. He placed the plate on an end table, began to blow on the coals until they glowed red hot, then placed the organs upon them where they sizzled and smoked. This seemed to have some queer, some effect upon the girls, for they stopped, their agonized thrashing, and fell into slumber. Now you may show me to my lodgings, said the priest, stroking his long black beard, and eyeing me with orbs like shimmering, shattered coals. So ends part two of the number of darkness, and it's only going to get more insane, folks. A huge high five for the author, Humboldt Lycanthrope, for sharing this tale for all. And I'll be including his original story in this episode's show notes, so you can read the rest if you wish, or you can listen to it Friday. Now, because you're brilliant... If you have a couple of seconds spare swing on by my itunes page to leave a review or pop on my patreon page and become one of my supporters and send some love my way every bit counts lastly if you want to reach out to me directly i don't bite much you can reach me at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com and you'll have my ear mate now i want to thank the legends that support me and this podcast, my Patreon supporters, firstly, my Ode Night T-Titan, the supporter who towers above all who would threatened Fort El Grey, Maya the Magnificent. Today I went all out on different music, looking for mystery, dark stings, and all sorts of musical motifs that would add an edge to this tale. Thanks to you, Maya, I'm able to do this. Your support is well spent on this production, and every step of the way has your touch on it as a result. You're a bloody legend, mate. Thank you so much, Maya. And my white to warlord, Lee Bauer, who supercharges this show with their support, allowing me to try something different, safely. Thank you, Lee, for your support. Just like Maya, it wouldn't be the same without you. And of course, my brilliant Earl Grey enforcers, Chad Wong, Joss Heather, Paige Martini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker One, and Solstra. Mates, I'll say it and I'll say it again. You people are so special. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, and I can't wait to catch you Friday for the finale of this episode. It's hectic to say the least as always you living legends till next we meet